This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by the MXR Bass Compressor. The MXR Bass Compressor is a powerful bass comp that allows you to fine-tune your sound from subtle peak limiting to hard squash compression. It's a totally transparent comp to give you control over attack, release, ratio, input, and output. It also has an easy-to-use LED that allows you to meter your signal threshold on the fly. It's an essential piece of gear that no bass player should be without and is great for both live and studio applications. Go to jimdunlop.com and check out the MXR Bass Innovations Bass Compressor. What's up, my friends? Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. This is a place for all of us bass freaks to chat it up, gain a little insight and inspiration, and have some fun with some great bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today we welcome Chris Cheney to the show. What's up, dude? What's happening? Really Thank you for being to be here. Oh, I appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, big big fan of your plan. Oh, I'm dude. Known, known about you for quite some time, and your Insta posts kind of just make me feel like I need to start from ground zero. All no again. way, no way, dude. No <laughs> way, man. I, I, I appreciate you the being here. The energy on the base blows me away. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm a huge fan of yours as well. We actually have, uh, well, a bunch of mutual friends, but Barry Squire is a name in particular. Oh. That uh, I'm, Barry has been a good friend of mine since I was about 18. Um when I joined Suicidal Tendencies. And, oh, wow. And then, okay. um, but we were talking about you just the other day. I saw him in LA and we were talking about you with Alanis Morissette. I, I want to say that was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, that was his first audition. Yes. That's what he told, that's what he told me. Yeah, he, he said that. And for me, it's, it's the audition that almost never happened. I, at that time in LA, I was just gigging, you know, as many days a week as I could, like five, six days a week. I was teaching bass lessons on the side at a store at my a house I was renting with Gary Novak, great drummer, jazz drummer. He's playing with Chick Corea at the time. And I ended up getting called from a friend of mine, a guy named Yogi Lonich, who is a guitarist. Guitar player, who, yeah. Yeah, who, who's played with a lot of people. And... He ended up calling me and saying, hey, there's this girl on Madonna's label that's looking for a band. You want to come down there? They need a whole band, at least a drummer, guitarist, and, you know, a bassist. So I ended up just going by her management, which was a company called Third Encore on Sunset. And this is back in the cassette days. And it had three <laughs> songs on the cassette. And I want to say they were the song called Forgiven, obviously You Ought to Know, which was the first single, which was yet to be released. This was probably about like three or four months before the record was released. It was done. And I was sitting in my car. I had a Subaru at the time and I had the window. I had actually had the door open. I did not, I should have taken it seriously and like gone the day before, got the demo and, you know, really learned it thoroughly. I was in my car at Third Encore where the audition was being held with my bass hanging out the door, my foot hanging out, <laughs> my little cassette player and trying to discern like, what is, what's the bass going on there? You know, <laughs> and it was so funny because I, we go in and this is, I think Taylor had the gig, but Taylor wasn't there. They were still just probably checking out other drummers. Taylor Hawkins. See, yeah. Okay. Taylor kind of had the gig. He, he was working with, 
uh, Sash Jordan at the time, a Canadian artist. And her manager was a guy named Scott Welch. And that ended up being Alanis's manager. So he kind of had the gig. Scott Welch had told Taylor about this, this young girl who's awesome. You got to check it out. I think you'd be perfect. So I auditioned with a different drummer and this guitarist, Yogi. And Yogi's the reason I got the gig. Well, I got the gig because she liked my plan. But uh, the reason, you know, I'm not prepared. <laughs> oh, I, was I prepared? I don't know. Somewhat prepared. Well, it obviously works. Skating. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And I got a call back from Alanis. And when I went down for the call, back for the callback, that's when Taylor Hawkins was there. Jesse Tobias, who was one of the guitarists on the gig, he's been playing with Morrissey for years since, you know, he stopped playing with Alanis. But he had been the guitarist for the Chili Peppers, very short-lived. He was in the Chili Peppers. I, I don't remember the amount of weeks, but it was definitely a few oh, weeks. Oh, like weeks. Okay. Yeah, okay. Just, I, I don't know exactly what transpired, but he ended up joining Alanis at, right immediately after that. So the bass seat was like, you know, Who's that going to be? And we ended up bringing another guitarist. Taylor had played with this guitarist named Nick Lashley, who was also in, I believe, Sash Jordan's band with him and thought he would be perfect. And that ended up being small, a small little community, like a family. Yeah. <laughs> and, and kind of kind of owe it to to Barry, you know. He right. And then he kind of, I would say, made a a bit of a career or business out of fine, but there was so much success with that record and that band that it was like, God, well, he's part of that. He created that band, you know, or at least chaperoned those musicians into her world. Absolutely. Yeah. Barry, uh, Barry has a, a knack for putting those auditions and things together. And, uh, he's, he's a cool dude as well. He's very cool. Definitely. But, yeah. Um, so at that time, um, you said you were playing five or six days a week and doing lessons. Was that really your first pro gig? That was, I would say, I'd done a few. I'd played a couple gigs with, believe it or not, um, the, the Drifters, the Marvelettes. Oh, wow. Awesome. Um, so those, and I did a gig where I played with Rita Coolidge and Christopher Cross. And some of that was hooked up. I, it's such a small world how, and, and interesting thing in this industry, how connections are kind of everything and just being in the right place and being prepared and whatnot. I was teaching bass lessons at a store that no longer exists on Ventura Boulevard called Guitarville. And I was okay. in the back room and the owner comes in and goes, Hey, a guy just walked in and wants to take some bass lessons. You know, he's here now. Do you think you could squish him in? I'm like, yeah, man, I, you know, I'm doing jack shit. I have, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I have like two students, you know, whatever. His name um, was Kevin Bray, who was a big director, I, unbeknownst to me, but he ended up telling me, you know, my, yeah, my brother's a producer. He produces Madonna. His name's Stephen Bray. Have you heard of him? And as it turns out, I had heard of him. You know, he had worked with um, Guy Pratt, who's a great bass player. And he, I think his first big hit with Madonna was Get Into the Groove, Oh yeah, it was nice. a movie called Desperately Seeking Susan. And yeah, you probably know the song; it's a big hit. Yeah, and I was like, "No way, that's your brother." Anyway, he we got to the midway point in the lesson. He goes, "Yeah, I want to get your number. I want to, you know, take some bass lessons. Just like kind of a hobbyist. I already have a career, but I want to hand my hand your number off to my brother." I never thought I'd get a call. I got a call like that night. Awesome. And it and it turns out that. He calls me and goes, hey, man, this is Kevin Bray. Can 
or Stephen Bray, can you read? I go, yeah. I was like hot off the Berkeley trail. You yeah, know? I got you. I knew how to read. I didn't finish Berkeley, but I had a high, high rating at that school. My grandma was a ragtime pianist and I learned how to read both clefs at a younger age. And then I got pushed into, you know, reading more obviously once at, at Berkeley and okay. not only reading notation, but you know, like how you, you know, when you get a chart, it's helped me a lot of my career to know how to read notation and then also just read slash charts. And how often do you have to use that? Pretty frequently. Yeah. Not as frequently, not as much during the pandemic, but you know, on any film date, TV date, yeah, I used it last, no, about two weeks ago. I was at Sunset Sound doing a show on Netflix and every single note was, you know, mapped out. out. You have to yeah. read it. And then the other skill that's useful is, you know, I, I've noticed in my career, a lot of classical musicians, they can read anything. But then if you take the notes away and you just have the chords, they're not always, some are, there's exceptions to this rule, but some don't really know how to get by if it's not written for them. Uh, right. And that's where a guy like you or I who can jam and play Zeppelin and who tunes and whatever, just have fun and play blues, whatever. Right. You can improvise. So that's what this session was. And a lot of sessions have that, you know, these composers write MIDI charts sometimes on the bass and they don't want that fill. They're like, you know what? In bar 39, make it your own fill. So you have to go from, you know, to read the notation to just creating your own, you know, vibe your own fill being creative on the spot as well within that a perfect so storm like, yeah so that gig i show up and it was randy jackson was supposed to be the bass player and had to bail out for some reason this is way before american idol and it was a drummer named kurt Biscara, who's an amazing drummer he had done like you know tom petty records and played with ringo oh, wow. and played on seals record and a guitarist named Greg Aragine, who passed away sadly, but was an amazing guitarist. And they handed me this chart and it was like a five page synth bass, like Madonna style, double this, like Marcus Miller style, really like double okay. the bass with your thumb, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was deep into Marcus Miller and Larry Graham and slap style and. That's why when I watch your videos, I'm like, okay, I got to step up my game. I'll never be you, but geez. Oh, come on, man. But the reading, the readings saved my ass. I, and I, I realized right then and there, you know, Berkeley had prepared me for that type of thing, you know? And I it was the first one I did in LA where it was like, here is the exact part that the synth is playing. We want you to double it. So for younger players, uh, you would obviously recommend that they learn how to read. Hmm. Reading to me, it's one way I would just 100% to answer your question, yes. And to go further, what I think reading enables you to do, it's kind of like a book. You go into a library, any book, if you don't know how to read, you're, you're pretty limited. If your vocabulary is Dr. Seuss books, and that's about all you know, it's a little bit of notation. Yeah, you can kind of get by, but as soon as you dig into a novel, you're screwed. Right. So think of like the history of recorded music and how much music is available now online or back in those days, I'd go to manuscript stores and buy like I'd heard Jocko did the Dots Hour series. I learned that from Jimmy Earl and like one of my mentors, an incredible bassist. He plays on the Kimmel show and played with yeah. Chick at the time. And, you know, he's amazing. I love the guy. And he goes, yeah, man, check out this book. It's a cello, 113 cello suites. And I heard Jocko, this is what he studied out of. And 
I was like, oh, really? And as it turned out, one of the suites of those 113 was given to me at Berkeley by my teacher, but I never knew, never connected the dots. I didn't know it was a composer named Dotsauer. And hard reading, you have to read in tenor clef, bass clef. There might even be some tenor or treble clef in there, but. I'm fairly certain my brain would explode. <laughs> no, because so the reason it's 113 series and like four books is because it starts off, you know, not advanced. Like you're working your way from like kind of light intermediate beginner all the way up to the stratosphere, you know? Right. Okay. And to get stuff up to tempo, it's definitely designed for an instrument that's tuned in fifths, such as the cello. Okay. So there's certain ranges. Like if you could, if you had a five string, you could play it all on a regular P bass or jazz bass, like Fender, you, uh, you know, you have to transpose stuff up the octave, right? That's the only way to get through it. But I did, I did a lot of reading in that. And then the Omni book, which are you familiar with the Omni book? It's, Charlie, not, it's Charlie Parker's solos that wow. were transcribed and they have them in all the different clefs. So you can get it for bass clef. And what was nice about that is this is the exact opposite of a book like Dots Hour where there are these suites that are written that are very diatonic, not just diatonic harmony, but you know what I mean? Like ar arpeggiac and scalar versus the Charlie Parker book had accidentals everywhere, flats, sharps, playing chromatic lines, you know, at blistering tempos. And I would obviously slow the tempos down to, you know, 150 clicks slower and still have trouble. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the tempos would be like 300, you know, you're like, somebody, sometimes even faster. That's so and, and then Jamerson's book, those were like the three, the Standing in the Shadows book had come out. And just to have those transcriptions, I was like, geez, I couldn't believe it. And sometimes it was a good example what of those books is Jamerson would, the arranger of the song would sometimes, a lot of times have just like a, a basic bass idea. And just to hear him, you know, extrapolate upon these and then see it written and know how to read it, I could just absorb it that much quicker. So re reading to me, I wouldn't be able to, first of all, in terms of my career to make a living has made me quite a bit of financial gains though. It's made me money because I wouldn't be able to do film dates if I didn't know how to read. Right. It's an extremely yeah. valuable asset. Yeah. You know what I, I love about doing these and interviewing um, you and, and so many other bass players is that I am just blown away always by the amount of stuff that I take away from this and learning and, and, um, being able to check out new things. So I appreciate you on that. Oh, right on. My, my um, pleasure. What do you, uh, what do you enjoy more, um, sessions or live playing with a band? Oh, um, God, it's, it's funny. It's hard to, I go in phases. It's hard for me to say, I, I, there's nothing, nothing beats like the chemistry when you're playing with your, you know, I'm lucky I'm, I'm making music professionally with some of my closest friends and that's hard to beat. And then we also get together in the studio. So I, I enjoy live, but the thing about the studio is it allows you to be, depending on what you're doing, creative and take, you know, what, what fascinates me about the studio, it's hard to answer your question. It's like, it's really hard for me to pick one because I enjoy both so much. And okay. Sometimes it's the balance of life where you get to go out and, you know, make music live and then tuck away in a studio. And 
you'll hear a song. Say someone you're working for an artist and they have their demo or a very polished demo. Maybe there's no bass, maybe there is bass, or they like their bass, but they want it better than what's there. They want it more lively. You know what I mean? Right. Like Jamerson would spice up an arranger's idea. And when I get in that situation, I just like to pride myself as being adaptable to what I'm given. If they, if I play something and they say, you know what, I really hear eighth notes. You're only playing like, you know, you're playing 16th notes and you're filling in the blanks around these chords. Can you just drive it home with eighth notes? Or I'm already, you know, doing that. And they say, Hey, you know, don't, I don't want it to be just a straight eighth kind of thing. I want you to mix it up and make it a little more syncopated. Come up with like a McCartney. Can you come up with like a McCartney style hook? Like that works through all the changes that has common tones that, you know, just that whole process. Like there's so many different ways. Rhythmically, the less you play, the more you play, laying out, cutting on beat four, hold a, a dotted, you know, quarter note for three beats and then make sure you cut out right on beat four. All these little, little devices that, uh, you know, that can make or break or enhance a piece of music. You know, I, I love that process. I don't know Absolutely. if that explains it, but. I, I think you explained it pretty well, actually. You know, but, I'm a uh, rambler. I enjoy it to be quite honest Uh, and I'm sure everyone listening does as well Um, so for people that may not know you are the bassist in Jane's Addiction which is one of my favorite bands and um, I just saw a video I think yesterday or the day before of you guys jamming out before the show or something or oh yeah that was very cool do you guys do that all the time yeah we have a jam room set up backstage and you know, the motto was we started that, believe it or not with Alanis later, not right out of the gate, but as the, as the band had more success, Taylor and I, we'd love to warm up. And it was just so it's tough. I think just to be at a venue, you know, the process you get, you do a sound check if you're lucky. And then after the sound check, you show up at the venue and you're chilling out or, you know, for four hours before you're going to play and you have like catering. <laughs> and you can sit backstage and, you know, with a bass or whatnot and kind of just noodle around, warm up. But to actually sit and play with the drummer and like jam some of the tunes you're going to play, just get warm, you know, there's, and Jane's did that. When I joined Jane's Addiction, they had been doing that. And I just thought, okay, we're not total musos just backstage jamming, like, you know, I, we just love to see. Dave is the first place he goes and Perkins too. We rarely hang out in the dressing room. We just hang out in our little jam space. That's very cool. That's you know, awesome. run stuff. You know, just try different things, and I, I think it's a good, it's a healthy, healthy thing. You had you hit the stage, and you've already we've already been playing. We've already done half the gig. You know, right. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, you've played with some killer drummers, uh, Perkins, Stephen Perkins, and uh, Taylor Hawkins. Um, obviously the the relationship between the bass and drums is so important uh do you have a favorite drummer that you've played with you know what i'm i'm very spoiled and that's a it's not even a question that would get me in trouble with anybody because one of my i have a a list of my favorite drummers and you know gary novak would be high on the list because when i first moved to la i'd met him prior and he goes man we should get a place together and he was, he's a mentor to me. He's a musical prodigy. He can play the hell out of the bass, guitar, piano. Both his parents were pianists. Amazing. Yet alone, he's one of the most prolific drummers I know. 
So Gary's up there. Uh, Josh Freeze, I am in a band with a cover band called Royal Machines. And we've done a lot. We met through sessions and I basically recommended him to the gig when we needed a drummer. And now he is the drummer. Very cool. Taylor and I have been making music since 95. He's like my best friend and musical compadre on on it. Just about every, we finish each other's sentences. Oh, nice. You know, and you have a, you have a project with him, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the NHC. It's our, it's a project with our initials. We just figured at this point, we were all like, I, my wife goes, you guys should be called the other wives because, you know, Taylor calls me at 7am or (laughs) at dinner time. We're always just shooting the shit, talking about everything, you know? And I thought it was funny. And we just, none of us could decide on a name, not in a, a bad way. We're just like, that's just be our initials. I was in a band. It was funny. I was, I was in a band in high school, my first band called THC. And it was for okay. Tompkins, Halden, Cheney. And now uh, I'm in NHC, Navarro, Hawkins, Cheney. Oh, and yeah. Dave Navarro's in there too. Dave, okay. is, Dave is the guitarist. Okay. Taylor's the drummer. And I'm, I'm fumbling around on four strings over there. Yeah. <laughs> but also my, for drummers, I, one of my favorite, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate to play with guys like Aaron Sterling, who I love. Matt Chamberlain is a good friend of mine who's an incredible drummer, Chad Smith. I call him like rock Vinny. He's got the nuttiest chops and the greatest groove. And he's a kid. I think he's going to be 60 in like a month. Oh, wow. And he is ridiculous, you know? And then Steven Perkins is un, unduplicatable. He, I've played Jane songs with a lot of these drummers and we'll play like mountain song, or you know, just name like "Ain't No Right," one of the one of the Jane's classics, and nobody sounds like Steve Perkins. It's impossible. He has this flow, and unique. He's such a stylist, you know. One of that, the things, one of my favorite things about Stephen Perkins playing is uh, his creativity. Incredible. He's very creative in his very um, creative. Parts. Yeah, yeah. It's well, awesome. Exactly. Yeah. No one would have done what he did. You know. Right. It never it doesn't it never feels the same playing any one of those other songs with with another drummer. As much as I love all those other drummers. Yeah. And there's a I'm lesson understood. in that, you know. Right. So going back a little bit to uh your relationship with Taylor, um so you guys have throughout uh the Alanis thing and and all these years you've been friends and played together off and on. And now you have this project yourself. Um before we actually started this, you were you were talking about sort of the full circle moment where uh, Dave Navarro ended up playing with you guys as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I've been friends with Dave for almost 20 years, and we've made music more on than off. And Taylor, when I first met him, was the, the biggest Janes fan. And I, I, I think I mentioned, you know, we'd be playing at sound checks and arenas with Atlantis, like kind of just having an ego stroke and playing like, you know, up the beach, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if you're a Janes fan, you know it yeah. <laughs> or, or ocean size or stop or just pigs right. and Zen or something. We, we just play Eric Avery is, you know, that's a hard, it's a hard thing for me because Eric is like Stephen Perkins or even Dave, such a unique musician. And then here I am like, Chris Cheney, he's the guy for the James addiction. He's a session guy, blah, 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 or whatever they <laughs> label me as. I'm not at all. But, you know, I, mean, I can do that, but I'm just a fan too. Right. I always try to give it up and say that guy, he wrote nursery rhymes on bass, like the most digestible bass lines. I'll be at a show. We'll be playing Argentina at like a Lala 
Palooza Festival. And people were humming mountain song. They're not humming the melody, no offense to Perry or anyway, but yeah. bass lines are so, so massive. They're huge hooks. And you're almost, my role within that group is almost the drummer. Perkins is dancing around the bass line. You have to hold down, and he's just going, you know, bonkers over that part. I'm not changing, and that's for most of the songs. So when I joined, it was the the process. They were starting a record, and then I joined in on the process. And you know, that is not how I started playing. How did you? So how did that go for you? Get it in there. What What was your approach? Because I know oh. you didn't want to step on anyone's toes, and you also felt you know you had to fulfill a role that was already there i got a call i was out and i had done a record don was was producing a record for carly simon and i got the call for it he saw me play a gig with her son ben taylor and i get a call the next day and it's don was and i was like oh man how awesome i mean i love don was as, as a producer and a bass player was not was and he goes i'd like you to play bass on this record so i did it and this is a long-winded way of getting back to Jane's, but I ended up being out in Martha's Vineyard where she lives, and we were doing a short tour. We were going to do a show at, like, I think the, the Plaza Hotel, some kind of, like, corporate event, and then I was going to do a handful of shows with her son, Ben Taylor, and I had done a record with some great musicians. And I get, I had just, this was when cell phones were, like, the size of a brick. That was my <laughs> first cell phone. I get this cell phone, and... I know it's funny to talk about it today, but this is, it was one of my first phone calls. I'm in Martha's Vineyard and it's like a cell void and my phone rings. I'm like, no way, my phone's ringing. <laughs> you know, who has this number? <laughs> and Stephen Perkins had called my wife in LA. And it was a $9 number. call back then. Yeah, exactly. Sure. You know, I didn't make any money that week for the one like, 10 minute <laughs> conversation. And it was Stephen Perkins who I had met once back on the Lannis tour. And then we did a Tommy Lee project um, for this band called Methods of Mayhem. I, did I remember the that. I remember yeah, that. I did, yeah, I did about three weeks of the tour, but Ter Perkins actually did the tour. I had to leave the tour after a few weeks because I was on a retainer with Alanis and we were back to work. Gotcha. And that was my main gig at the right. time. And so Perkins goes, hey man, you you want to do um, some some Jane's Addiction shows? I'm like, hell yeah. Well, oh my God, when are they? And he's like, they're like in, you know, a couple weeks. But meanwhile, I'm on the East Coast on tour and I can't, just bail on my my band right so he's like oh man oh really uh I, so i thought i was out of the gig and he goes let me talk to perry and i get a call from perry because i wasn't gonna be able to make the rehearsals which was really stressful for me because i'm primarily I, at this point i was primarily a finger player and you know i could play a little bit with a pick but kind of a hack honestly i didn't put the time in i love the style the style i it's no question but you know how it is There's only so many hours in a day and i was digging into you know, players who play with fingers more than pick. And so I did a deep dive in a van as we were driving from club to club when I was on the East Coast with Ben Taylor and Carly Simon. And from, I get back, well, first of all, Perry calls me and goes, hey man, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked you can do these shows. I Perkins told me you can't rehearse though. Not until, I, I could do one rehearsal before it. And the first shows were Leeds and Reading. Massive, <laughs> little little shows. Know, like, little massive shows. festivals. I'm like, <laughs> Who's this punk on the bass? Oh my God. <laughs> but he goes, man, you better nail it. You know? <laughs> Did he say that? Yeah. He actually oh, said wow. that. Okay. Like, 
because no pressure or anything. No, but, but they they were so cool. And after that, we had a good time. And Bob Ezrin came by one of the rehearsals and thought I was good enough to go into the studio with them. And that was the process. I got in there, and it was just an amazing experience. You know, the, the Strays record. Just to work with Bob Ezrin, I remember talking to my dad. My dad was a huge Pink Floyd fan. You know, he did Berlin by Lou Reed. He introduced Tony Levin to Peter Gabriel. Wow. Like, you can talk to Bob Ezrin for days on end and not run out of serious gems. Oh, he, I can imagine. Did. I remember one time, we were, we were in the studio, and we were playing this, this recording this tune. I was doing the bass on it. And I thought I had a killing bass sound. I was like, man, the engineer, a guy named Brian Virtue, had just dialed in, you know, the holy grail of tones, in my opinion. And Bob walks in and, you know, he can be like a kind of like a hard personality if you don't know him, you know. And I mean that with love. So he, he shakes his head. He's like, yeah, I don't know about that. So, you know, that kind of thing. I'm like, oh, man, shit. Maybe we should start <laughs> off with a shittier bass sound than he, you know. <laughs> and he goes, you know what? Maybe it's the bass. You know that. Let me go get the bass that Roger played on the wall, and it was at his studio at Henson. We were at Henson Recording Studios in L.A., and I'm waiting around for like 40 minutes. He sent one of the assistants to find this bass, and the bass comes back, and it hadn't been played since the wall. It just oh, sounded wow. like a dog. Like it needed tons of love. And in Bob's defense, he he goes. Go back to your other base. I think what you had, I think what you had was perfect. No. <laughs> but I got just, to, I he got just to, wanted to make sure. He just wanted to make sure. Exactly. Yeah, I got you, man. But I don't that's, know if, where we started, and that was a long-winded way, but that's kind of how I got the gig, or is how I got the gig. And, you know, I've always tried to pride myself on, I grew up listening, I mentioned my dad, like my parents would play Stevie Wonder, The Stones, The Beatles, The Who, Zeppelin, the Bee Gees, I'm a, the biggest Maurice Gibb Bee Gees fan on the planet. I love, I've watched their documentary five times. They're master classes in songwriting. There's a reason Barry Gibb is like, whatever, fourth or fifth, maybe fifth on the list of the all-time greatest songwriters. You know? Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's up there. It's like McCartney, Lennon, Max Martin, and Barry Gibb. You know? Wow. Anyway, I I, I I just always prided myself on liking lots of styles. Some people can look yeah. at that. And I was going to say that I think that you're an extremely versatile uh, musician, and and you that's what makes you successful in playing sessions and and doing the film stuff, as well as being able to rock out with uh, Alanis or Jane's Addiction or your own projects. Um, let's go back to like. Way back, way back. Uh, how'd you start? What, oh, and why? And why the bass? Demotion, right out of the gate. I loved Rush. I would just okay. have to hand it right over. I met Getty Lee a couple years ago. Oh, I've always wanted to meet him. Crazy side story. I, I filled in for Nate Mendel for the Foo Fighters on a gig. It was supposed to be a couple gigs, and his wife was pregnant with twins during their some of the biggest shows of their tour. Okay, and. I get a call from Nate going, Hey man, I, you know, we're on the East coast. His wife's obviously can't fly. She's on the West coast. So I had to learn like almost a three hour show. We didn't have a sound check. It was like, get on stage and do this show. And they've been playing together for, you know, 20, almost 25 years and are beyond well oiled. 
and get you the reason I'm telling you this hey, is wait that, a second here's the moral of the story if you have a huge 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 gig and you need somebody uh, an hour before no matter if it's a six hour set or a two hour set you need to call Chris Cheney uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Man. If, you want, if you want a whole bucket full of clams you give me a ring buddy <laughs> <laughs> so, Man, you're learning songs in the car. You're, you're last minute playing a scrambling. Wimbledon. That is awesome, dude. So, so go ahead. Sorry I, to interrupt say, you. No, no. The reason I say that is Taylor and I are both massive Rush fans. They're at the gig. They're playing in Toronto in like the you know the Sky Dome or whatever it's called. Where the I, I think it's where the Expos play or. Is that the team? Not the Expo. What is it? I, I don't even know. I'm not the, the biggest sports fan. Yeah, I'm not. I'm it was not a massive that. show for like 50,000 people in a stadium. And Getty and Alex are there. And I couldn't believe it. I'm having these great conversations. I'm talking with Getty Lee. This is prior to his book being released. And he's telling me about his amazing bass collection. And I was a, just a, the biggest kid in the candy store. And I go, man, do you have any guilds? And he goes, no, no. I'm like, oh, man, you got to get a guild M85. I did this record and I played it through a guitar amp on every song. I think you would love like an old guild M85 from the 60s with a Fred Hammond Dark Star pickup. He was telling me about these obscure basses, his P basses and jazz basses, custom color, this and that. And on top of that, you know, I said, what about a Starfire? That's another guild, you know? And I just started naming some a few basses that he didn't have. So we just were having a great conversation. Meanwhile, I'm like kicking myself that I'm having a conversation with Getty Lee. <laughs> and that moves back to my inspiration to why I started. I loved Rush and I loved Chris Squire. I loved Yes. I like more progressive. I kind of moved into like the Stevie Wonder, Left Hand, McCartney after those bands, honestly. You know, not that I play anything like any of these people, but I, I wish, you know, they're my heroes. And John Paul Jones, another hero. Oh, Zeppelin, yeah. I loved you know, I mean, no reading anyway, you know, I, yeah, yeah. My, All inspirations. Yeah. My, my, uh, it is full circle. Cause when I started, I wanted to play guitar and my buddy was playing guitar already. He got a guitar and he was a few months ahead of me. So he goes, but man, you should check out bass. So I said, yeah, man. I, I mean, okay, sure. I love music. Why not? Let's give it a go. And our first band was THC. It was this drummer named Paul Tompkins, who ends up working for like Elon Musk and is a mission director at SpaceX. Like a oh super brainiac, like astrophysics <laughs> degrees from MIT and Stanford and Caltech. And, you know, he went on, he's no longer playing drums, probably still could. Yeah. And then a guitarist friend of mine who ended up building a studio up in the Bay Area where a lot of artists have recorded there. Chris Squire has been or had been there, God rest his soul, you know, and he was the guitarist. So his name was Greg Halden. It was Paul Tompkins, Greg Halden, and Chris Cheney, THC. And we just and that was, was in high school. Funny, yeah, that was a funny thing. We, I grew up in Mill Valley, California, which is right over the bridge, pretty musical, musically fertile, fertile rich place. It's where like the Grateful Dead, you uh, know, yes. okay. that, that area. Nice. Tony Williams lived there, you know, oh, awesome. that, you know, so there was like a Santana lives in Mill Valley. So I think Tony Williams was in San Anselmo, which is like next town over. You know, Sammy Hagar's son went to the school we went to, you know, Got it. Sammy Hagar lived there. A, a lot of musicians journey. I ended up meeting Steve Perry later, Night Ranger, a big, big pool of, you know, in this little funky kind of hippie town at the time. Now it's like Techville and you got to make, you know, $10 million a year to live there. But at that, <laughs> at that time it was, you know, 
like wheat germ and granola and yoga and before it had caught on to the rest of the country. Right. Okay. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but you were to talk uh, to some of the old school people from there, they would agree. Well, you were there and you lived it. So, you know, I did. Yeah. So that was my, you know, start. And both of these, the other musicians just, we were just trying to learn like Tom Sawyer and, you know, rush jams as yeah, best man. we could. We, we had Xanadu down. <laughs> awesome. And then I tried to push them to learn Olivia Newton-John Xanadu and they fired me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love, I'm a huge That's Olivia Newton-John fan That's a good too. one too. Yeah. What is that? Let's get physical. physical. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> anyway, yeah. another story, another show. <laughs> we can talk, we Did, can talk about Andy Gibb if you want. No. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, what do, you, um, what do you want people to know about you that they may not know? Hmm. Uh, musically? Uh, let's go both. Well, I'm a huge ski nut. And if I wasn't making music for my the funnest thing in my life and for a living, I would have tried to go down that avenue. I, I love skiing. It's like snow skiing? Thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, okay. It's just a hobby. Okay. You know, I've been I, once and I spent the entire time on my ass. So I never yeah, tried I, again. <laughs> I started pretty young and I try to stay healthy. I'm, 50, I'm 51 now. And wow, dude, you look great. For, oh, and dude. and oh, no man. one can see you at this very moment, but let me just tell you, friends, that he looks great. <laughs> Thank you, man. Well, <laughs> it's, you know, years of unhealthy living followed by lots of years of healthy living. <laughs> uh, so you, <laughs> you balanced I mean? it out. You yeah, road, li- it road out. life can be hard. Back in those days, I mean, I won't shy away. I'll be totally frank. I mean, I wasn't taking care of myself. We were partying, we were drinking and doing drugs. And that yeah. was another time. And, you know, I don't, you. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't take any way, anything away from my, my journey, but yeah, skiing, there you go. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so from, from your very first pro gig to now, what do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned that you can to, to some of the people that are just starting out and wanting to tour for a living or be a musician? Both, I mean, both, both on a personal level and a professional level. For me, it's about the people you work with and who you are as a person and being authentic within the scenario you're thrown into or you're put into, whether it's your own band or you're being hired by somebody. It's about showing up prepared and being pro. It's all the cliches like you, you but being a good person, you know, like having good energy and good karma when you walk in the room. So people like to be around you. You don't, it's like base and understanding, you know, whatever song forms and how to play the instrument. That's already, you won't be there if you can't do that. Or if you can't do that, you're out of the, you're out, man. You get one shot and then you're not going to get called again. You know, right. that, so that's just like a prerequisite to the next class. You got to be prepared. But then that X factor is, I think, what keeps people working. I've been fortunate. I get along with people and and it's it's not, you know, I'm like phoning it in or trying to be a jive and make myself somebody that I'm not. I legitimately can be who I am in front of people. I can be myself. I can be my sense of humor. And the people I don't know that well, take it or leave it. Maybe I won't get the call back if they don't jive with me. But if they do, they might be a repeat customer. You know what I mean? 
So it's just being authentic, true to yourself, all cliche stuff, but, and then putting the time in and learning. I mean, as a musician, I love to, I don't, I used to transcribe more. Now I just learn, you know, I'll still occasionally transcribe, but just mm-hmm. learning lots of music. I think that's the best way to progress. I, I, I was telling uh, Ross today, my, my, my buddy from 1975, who was over and we were just talking shop. We were talking about people that it's a fine line between learning exercises. And this guy could play 16th note triplets of the C major scale and groupings of six up and down the neck. And I would marvel and go, will I ever be able to do that? Holy shit. But you'd ask him, like you would play a groove and he couldn't play a groove like to save his life. I won't even name a name. He had all the chops, you know, money can buy and then some, but he couldn't just play a song or, or come up with his own groove. Hmm. And he's no longer playing. I thought Got that it. guy would go on, but you know, I was young at the time when I met him. And so it's not about that. I Nowadays you look at Instagram and YouTube and there are people that can, you know, play circles around me at my, on my best day, literally circles. I, I would just be standing there being like sprinted around as I walk by hundreds, probably thousands of other bass players in this world. Maybe even more than that. Maybe there's a million other bass players that wax me. And that's the truth. But can they play whole notes and make it feel right? And maybe they can. And maybe all of, maybe all of them can, but maybe they can't. <laughs> you that's know? true. Some that's... people try to some people try to force their exercises into the gig instead of reacting. One thing I talked about with with my buddy today was just being so attentive and always listening to everybody else but yourself, and then letting it come. If you're prepared and have put enough time in on your instrument, whatever you play is done. It's almost like you're an out of body, above experience, looking down on whatever it is a trio that you're playing with. And you can fill in the blanks and hear where you need to play, where you don't need to play, when when you want to fill or go with the drummer. And that's where you get those magical moments. And jazz musicians do it for a living. In a pop context, you know, a lot of times it's more part driven. You want to stick. Yeah. So I, I like to kind of suck a little bit of that jazz influence or mentality into my into my plan and react with what I hear. That is a great way to put it. Yeah, you listen. Just yeah. just listening to music, being dynamic. Uh, you know, I did a gig a couple of weeks ago, and and the guitarist was playing so loud. I'm like, man, we're, we brought down the last chorus down to like, and they're, you know what I mean? I won't name any name. I'm just giving an example of like, maybe that person does listen, but they sure weren't listening in the moment. So you got <laughs> to always listen. You know, really listen. Truth. That is the truth. And I'm far from perfect, man. I have my, every gig I do, I have my list of mistakes. I'm like, God damn, I was playing, I did a gig at Atlanta Midtown Music Festival. And it was like almost a hundred thousand people two nights ago and in Atlanta with Miley Cyrus. And, you know, I'm playing a sub 37, like a Moog key bass on stuff. And then you Uh go to my bass and I have I had a tuner, my pedal board was underneath my keyboards and we're playing Wrecking Ball. And on the very, I come in at the first chorus, my tuner was on and I, I, I thought for sure I'd kick my tuner off. Yeah. It's like the, like the money shot of the gig and and here there's no bass. I hit my bass. I'm like, Dude, oh God. What a you know how many times I have done that and almost, <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, I used no. to be 
I used to beat myself up so much. You know, Taylor and I would have these conversations. You know, he went through a phase with Alanis where it's like if you flub a fill or have any little thing or you rushed this or dragged that. Well, it's usually never dragging, but, you know, pushing live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Went through a phase where it was like just real hard on yourself. Now, man, I, I don't let that stuff. I just try to be in the moment and let it let it go. It's like, it's fine. We're human. I mean, I don't want to hear a bunch of robots. Then it's like, you know, what's the fun in that? Dude, so much uh, truth and wisdom in everything you just said. I, I appreciate that big time. Uh, is there is there a uh, is there a baseline that you would recommend for players to learn? Just oh, like um, a, like yeah, a complete or a baseline. Yeah, yeah, like a that anybody came up with, like a classic oh, line oh. that you you recommend somebody learn. Mm, that oh, every God. every bassist should learn, I should say. That's like a trick question. Oh my God. I mean, you could say for once in my life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> TV Wonder, how about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't know, but that's, that's a more full of, are you talking more like just like a, yeah, it's something that's going to show that you, that a player can just sit down and this is like, this is what I'm grooving to. You know what I'm saying? I like, I mean, I, I love a lot of Chris Squire's bass lines. Like learn a okay. song called Sound Chaser. Sound Chaser, okay. Record Relayer. That's an amazing bass line. And that was done, I believe it was one of the early examples where they jammed at different tempos and it, the song moves up and forth. It starts in E and the whole line is played on the E string and then it goes to A and the whole line is played on the A string, then to D and so forth. But each time it moves up a fourth, the tempo changes. So when I was listening to it, I was always kind of fascinated like how in the hell did they do that? how did they all just go to this new faster tempo because the record was made in the 70s you know right no pro tools they then. did is they would jam in that key and then they spliced in like expert tape cutters yeah mapped it out but i i love chris squire i think he's what's the name of the song again down chaser okay awesome God, I'm, i'll have a, if i have a bass let me see if i can get oh there it is yeah i'll see if i what is it Oh yeah. Oh, I don't have an amp on here, but it's it's this kind of thing. Let me see if this is on. All right. Goddamn pick. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. Do I have a sound? It's probably them dead strings. And... Oh, there we go. There we go. Hear it over Zoom is weird for bass. Can you hear this at all? I can... Yeah, I hear it loud and clear. So... That's the basic line. Nice. That I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that jam. Yeah, and he's like, it's like it's an amazing bass part. Wow, it was a great bassist. I gotta, I gotta check that out as well. I, I was in London, you know, several years back. I, I've done three records, more than that. One on Taylor's solo record, but we have a side project on top of our NHC, the new band um called it was taylor hawkins and the coattail riders oh yeah okay. we, thought, we thought we'd sell more records you know taylor's and the foo fighters so he's you right. know the biggest rock star and he's like you know we were the coattail riders and the label we wanted to try to sell records but we never 
we're shitty with social media. We never like really pushed it. We just had fun and did live shows, but we were in London and we had Brian May and Roger Taylor come down and we did like a mini queen set. They played on our second record. Amazing. And Chris Squire came down and I had this time my P bass there and he strapped on my, he didn't have his bass. Yeah. And he played my bass and sat in on a song. Is that like a dream come true or what? Yes. I, I mean, had, I had, I did the, I played at the Chris Cornell tribute at the forum after his passing. They did a big, big show. And uh-huh. I was so fortunate to be asked to, to play a few songs there. And I played with Tom Morello and Brad Will. And awesome. Timmy C I, at the time, I, I don't know why he wasn't there, but he was not, not there. And yeah. who I'm a huge fan of, by the way, that guy's insane. Yeah, he's great. So Robert Trujillo was going to play one song. I was playing two songs and then Geezer played two songs and Geezer played my bass. Wow. And, Cause I had, I have an old Lakeland that I had at the time and he goes, Oh man, I had the same bass. <laughs> cool. He had never, we were at one time in, um, where were we? We were in new Orleans and James was opening up for Ozzy and friends. Tony was ill at the time. Okay. Not able, it was supposed to be a Sabbath tour and Ozzy ended up going out and making it Ozzy and friends. And I have a, a, a buddy who is Ozzy's sponsor. Right. And, okay. and, and, and he goes, man, we're thinking about going down to Cafe Du Monde. If you, if you know New Orleans, that's yeah. like, you know, it's kind of a touristy spot. You go and get chicory and bananas. Yeah. And he goes, man, you want to come? I think uh, Geezer's going to come. And it ended up just being Geezer. I'd never met him. And we just shot the shit. And then I hadn't seen him for a little while. And I saw him again. And he's one of my favorite bass players too. I, I Absolutely. His, the way he plays... You know, no, no players. I mean, I don't have any effects or anything, but the fact that he, you can sound in that world, just playing right over the fingerboard, you know, you know what I mean? That area. Yeah. It's just fat. If you add just a little bit of hair to it, that's the sound. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Dude. So let's talk about basses then. What's your uh, desert Island bass list? Well, Okay. I have a 58 P bass with flats. Okay. That a producer out here named Jim Scott calls the money maker. I showed up and plugged that in. And he's like, damn, that's, that's it. One. That's, that's the it. one. Awesome. Never not, never not have that bass. Okay. I have another 1960 P bass that I love. I have a 65 jazz and a 62 jazz that are both amazing. I'm spoiled. I've been collecting bass forever. Do so you I prefer a, you prefer a P over a jazz or you love them equally like children? I kind of, I kind of do, you know, okay. but I, if I had to pick, I would probably go P, P bass. I like the versatility and there, there's like that. I always use this term, but it's like a pillowy kind of bottom end that you get out of a P bass that I can't get it from a jazz bass. But then the problem with the only downfall with the p bass is for muting I mean, you can put foam or mute with your left hand yeah you know for people who some people don't even understand might not understand what that is you know you know what i'm talking about i do yes yeah will lee's like a master of that yes um and a jazz bass you get that because it's the the you know pickup in the back for muting you you can mute with your palm on a P bass, you got to use, you really got to use your left hand to mute. 
But it's really those two bases. It's funny. I'm glad you said that because that's something I actually never even would have thought to put into words, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, but well, but love, it it's I absolutely the Willis. truth. You yeah. know, Gary, Gary Willis. Willis yeah, uh, Tribal Tech was that who? Yeah, like yeah, one of the greatest, gnarliest bass players ever on electric bass, without Fu- question. Fusion you know? player, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. He would. I I I've had the the good fortune to hang out with him a few times, and he's talked about like economy where you're for so many years. I'm like overworking. It's it's like wearing. Imagine going on a jog and putting you know like ankle weights on a weighted belt or you know backpack with fucking bricks in it and sand and trying to run around the block and be as fast as you can right okay you're gonna have a heart attack you can't do that unless you've trained for it but even at that i mean you're not going to be the fastest if you want to you know really get the best out of it and have economy of motion he would do this thing where he would play the note and it's just it's like you're just hearing like the string scrape but then then once you finally get a sound, that's how hard you need to squeeze the push press down on the string. Okay. Right? Yeah. As for you see my hand, I would be like baseball gripping and overusing everything. And I'm like, you're never gonna be able to play smoothly and quick if you're using that. Right. You know, that overzealous, you know, gusto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I like to just, just snip away things from so many different players and he's he's been an influence just in his overall approach and technique i play nothing like him obviously you could hear me go that guy doesn't even deserve to talk about curry well <laughs> yeah you're right i agree with you 100 so there you go oh man he's a legend he's like a coltrane on the instrument you know you're very humble man i remember him putting like popsicle sticks in the bass and playing it like a kalimba i mean he's done like such creative creative things on the instrument and his technique and style and all that. Like I said, I play nothing like him. I don't even try to play like him. I, I just marvel at his proficiency and strength. He's just got such passion focused commitment to what he does. And I love, I love him too. Marcus Miller was one of my biggest early influences. When I first heard, run, I heard run for cover on the straight to the heart record like I said, it came just a little bit later. I was first into, you know, Chris Squire and Getty Lee and John Paul Jones, Noel Redding, like some of the rock guys. And then yeah. I hear a buddy of ours, it's always like this. Either you start in jazz or you start in rock. At least it seems to be a common theme. And my buddy was a, a drummer and his a little bit older brother was playing jazz and goes, hey, I check this out. And I heard Marcus Miller play. There's a There's a great, if you haven't seen it, it's on, I think it was live at SIR. It's the live version of Straight to the Heart. It didn't make the record of Straight to the Heart. It's a David Sanborn record that Marcus, I think he produced it and basically wrote most of the songs on it. And it's an insane band. It's like Don Drolnick playing keyboard, uh, Hiram Bullock on guitar. Oh, cool. Buddy Williams plays drums and David Sanborn. And Marcus lays down, and you can't believe it's a live recording, and it's enough to make you quit right then and there. <laughs> like, Jesus. Or you're going to be the most inspired person in the room. You know? Right. Or both. Uh, both. Yeah. 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 I kind of go on the both. Right. Both. Very cool. What about strings? <sighs> hmm. I, oh, Dunlop, 100%. I mean, I, but I use 
I use their flats. I use their rounds. Pretty much those are the two. I, I don't, I'm not, I have some bases with like tape wound strings. I have a funny base. I'll show it to you. This is, this base is by a guy named uh, Rob Allen. Okay. And oh, nice. Spalted maple. And it's got those tape wound strings on it. It's how it came. And Rick Turner, who's the designer of Alembic, did the preamp. And it's got like a piezo. Is that a fretless? It's a fretless with lines. I saw it at um, a guitar vintage guitar shop on Sunset years ago. And it's the most kind of uprighty, you know, you can you probably can't hear over here, but maybe you can. You know what I mean? It has yeah, like a lot of I I it's got a, a very woody organic very tone. Woody. It's, yeah. I play a bit of upright. I'm a hack, but you know, I, yeah. I play it enough to get through, you know, is what the upright's one of those instruments that if you're just not on it every day doing that, what I really should do is just sit and only play upright. And I then, wanna I don't play upright, but I wanna learn. My grandfather had one uh oh, really? growing up, but he let me, you know, bang on it a little bit when I was a kid, but I never really got into it. But that's one of the things I, I, I plan on doing. Oh yeah. Upright. It, b both my kids played string instruments and the thing about string instruments, very interesting. M most people, I don't think understand this or know this. Every, the piano is the master instrument of all the instruments. It's the, it's the master instrument, but they don't recommend starting on a, on a piano. Like some, some guitarists might beg to differ, but. That's yeah, good. yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Who am I to say this? <laughs> what I will say is a piano, you could be anybody in the room, not a musician, and you can walk up to a piano and hit any note on the piano, and here is your tone. You're given a tone. So to really develop intonation and technique, you can't walk up to a cello with a bow and just get a tone. You It takes a lot of dedication to be able to just get just to, honestly just to get a note same with upright bass like just to get a, a sound you know what i mean the technique it does it really yeah. develops your ear in a different way takes takes a lot of dedication just to get your first like hey play a c let's hear you play a c as we're you know i could walk up to a piano and not know and then it goes then it goes and I could hit a, c a little harder or a little softer and here's my c Right. And I'm not taking anything away from a piano. I mean, piano, like I said at the beginning, it's it's kind of the master instrument for right. arranging. You know, John Williams still sits at a piano with a pad of paper and a pencil. Yeah, he's not on Xavelius or one of those programs. Right, right. It's like old school doing it, you know. That's great. I love yeah. that, actually. Yeah. Dude, um, so this last year and a half has been obviously challenging for the world. And, and for us as musicians, what have you been doing to stay creative and survive? I think it's ebbed and flowed between, you know, funk, funk factor, you know, funk 49 and, you know, and, and euphoric awesomeness. You know, I, I, I was, I was, I ended up getting a place. I'm very fortunate. I, I, at the beginning of the pandemic, probably about two months into it, we, we live in LA and we're not that far from Palm Springs and Josh Freeze, 
is a good friend. You know, our families have like, we've stayed out at his house. Him and his wife, Nicole, have a place out in Palm Springs. And it's a great getaway from LA. So when everything was kind of going south and LA was under lockdown, they didn't even know how to show a house underneath, you know, the, the pandemic, like realtors, everything was just shut down. Yeah. We ended up finding an amazing place out there and bought a second home. Oh, cool. Like a getaway pad. And I ended up putting a studio in it. The house had been expanded by like 800 feet from their original. It was a house built in 1959 in a really cool area. It backs up to like a 10,800 foot mountain. It's so great to just escape. I mean, LA, I live in the thick of LA and it's, you know, whatever, 15 million people. Yeah. And then during a pandemic, it was just felt like, I don't want to be in the city. So there was that. And then the main thing that happened during the pandemic, aside from going out there for little jaunts and getting out of Dodge, was making the, the record with Taylor and Navarro. We got together. We did this entire project and it might never have happened. So this is like a silver lining of the yeah. pandemic. I'm focusing on the good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And he has a studio. We all, you know how it is today. I'm sure I see you have bases and mics. I'm sure you have a recording set up. Yeah. To do anything with all the plugins and everything at our fingertips these days. There's no excuse. And Taylor has a great studio set up with drums. So we decided we get tested. I've done over 250 tests an insane amount. So we were being as safe as we could. And at a certain point, you know, we got vaccinated. And But prior to that, we would go out there and, you know, we had all been quarantined. So we knew none of us had it. We weren't, I was just sending out for groceries you know, on Instacart uh-huh. and kind of following the protocols. Yeah. Following the protocols that were implemented. And we might not have ever done it because everyone's schedules are so busy. So it's the first time in my life of the last 25 years where I've been home and there's something so refreshing, at least initially about, man, I'm not going down to Sao Paulo and then (laughs) there to New Zealand and then to Japan and like now it's gotta be, I I think that's uh, like you said, the silver lining. Um, it gave so many of us a chance to just be free to be creative and do yeah. something at not only that we haven't probably maybe not would have ever been able to do, um, but out of sort of necessity yes. <laughs> of just, we have to be creative and yeah. to have the time to do it is, is a great feeling. You have to you gotta be proud of that record as well. When does that come out? Well, there's two songs right now we have, um, our, our Insta is NHC Music Official. Okay. It's our initials, Music Official. Uh-huh. And we have a video up on YouTube for a song called Feed the Cruel, which Very is kind good. of like, check it out if you, if you get, you know, three minutes of your life. And it's like, a, it's a good little tour de force. And I, I think you'll dig some of the bass playing on it. Hopefully you let me know. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I will, man. And and Taylor's killing it. He's just playing drums and doing lead vocals. For our first live show, we're going to bring in Barb Gruska, who's John Williams' granddaughter, and and Laura Mace and Samantha Sidley. They actually sing background on a few songs out with the Foo Fighters. And then Pat Smear is going to play rhythm guitar with us, too. Cool. Awesome. Dave, Dave is 
like the greatest guitarist, man. I love him so much as a person and player. And he always comes up with the most incredible parts and just like things just ascend when the three of us are in a room, we all like finish each other's sentences. And like I said, there's no ego. It's like the best part wins. And sometimes you have it and sometimes you don't, and it doesn't matter. I'm not walking away. If I don't have it with my tail between my legs, I'm like going, yeah, you're right. That part is better. I like that better. We're all musically Maybe the word is musically mature enough to hear that that's serving the song better than that that idea, right? You're also taking the time to listen, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You know, we can right. all all admit it. Those guys in the studio, they call me note coach. <laughs> I, I, know, I know a lot about theory, so I'm like, nah, that, that's not gonna work, man. Change this. Drop that beat right there. Forget that. You know, it's funny. We just have we just have a lot of we all have you know, kind of take a piss on each other, you know, not literally, obviously, but you know, well, hey. <laughs> I mean, you know, to each their own, I guess, but no, I'm just kidding with you. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. We just have, it's a, it's a really funny group of people. And I brought in an engineer I introduced to Taylor, a guy named Robert Stevenson, who he's actually been working with Josh at home, you know, the Queens of the Stone Age guys yeah. doing yeah. their record, engineering cool. their record. And he, basically co-produced it with a guy named John Lusteau, who's the manager of the 606, 607s studios, which are the Food Fighters studio. Oh, cool. No, which we got to utilize for mixing the record. And one of the perks. Yeah. So, I mean, that goes back also to, to um, building these relationships yeah. in, in, in our business. Well, in, in life, really, you know, you never know what can, can happen. Oh yeah, I'll tell you a, a quick story. I was doing a a record for an artist named I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Actually, Ian Allison plays with him. His name's Eric Hutchinson. Okay, yeah. He was signed to Maverick Records, and this is several years. This is like a decade ago, if not more. I get a call, and we did this record at it was New Monkey Studios, Elliot Smith's studio, and after he had passed. So however long ago that was, it was within the year after he passed that we were at his amazing sounding studio playing with this artist named Eric Hutchinson and amazing. He ended up getting dropped or something. I don't know the whole, the legal drama or whatever uh, from Maverick records. And I did it. We did it kind of on the cheap and he's like, man, I'll, I'll pay you guys better. You know, you know, I'm going to get a deal or whatever. And I've heard this before in my career, just like you always, you know, I, I just want to play, you know, right. especially too, if it's good people and good music. Me too. That's it. That's it. So I get a call from him like a year and a half after the record. He's like, Oh, by the way, you know, I got signed with Warner brothers. You're going to get paid for the whole record again through the union and that kind of thing like that, 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 that just rarely happens. And the reason I bring it up is it's just, you know, you meet somebody and, and some people I know might've said, Oh no, man, I can't do it for that. That's chicken feed. I, 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 you know, if something right. else comes up that's better, I, I, I don't want to be locked into doing that. Right. You know? So you never, you just never know who you're working with and what's going to happen to them. One of my, one of my close friends, he's, he just won producer of the year at the Grammys this year. His name's Andrew Watt. Oh, congratulations to him. That's very and cool. He, yeah. And he, I've known him before he had a hit and he would play me all these, you know, songs that he had written on his little Pro Tools rig, we had done some gigs. He's a rocker. He loves, you know, he's a great musician all around. Great producer, songwriter, musician. Obviously, he's had, you know, 
he's like competing with the Max Martins of the world. You know, he's got right. like probably 10 number one hits. He wrote Havana and Let Me Love You, Justin Bieber. And it's so great. And one, yeah, one of the things that struck me about him is we were, we did a gig and we're playing, you know, Bowie tunes and Stones and Alice in Chains and Zeppelin and just, you know, just doing like basically like a cover gig. And I just loved his his playing. And we were hanging and I said, he go, we were talking about music and I told him one of my favorite producers is Max Martin. And people kind of can slough. If you're not in that world, you can kind of slough off and say, oh yeah, anybody can write a pop hit. You know, that like, yeah, that's, you know, not, that's not hard. Yeah. Whenever, I, whenever I hear that, I just go, mm, I don't know if we can be friends. No. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, I think that goes back to having some maturity because for me, yeah. it's someone's art and it's someone's creativity, no matter what genre of music it is or, or, and I just appreciate it all. Max would be in the studio and I heard this story and I loved it. He'd be working with an artist, whoever it is. We don't have to name names. It could probably be The Weeknd or Ariana Grande or Taylor, somebody, some massive star. And Max would be in there and he'd say, okay, everybody leave for 10 minutes and whoever comes back with the best melody, you know, for this verse or this chorus or pre whatever the part is, uh, you know, we'll see who comes back the best and he wins every time. <laughs> can't beat awesome. Max Martin. No, no, no. Why he's, uh, you know, that's why he's Max Martin, dude. What brings you joy, man? My right now, I think aside from being in an amazing relationship for almost 24 years with my wife, it's still congrats, congrats on that. Thank you. But my my kid. My kids are writing a ton of music. My son is like a mini Max. All he does all day, it's like a 40-hour-a-week job of passion and love is write music. And they have a manager now, and they were offered a, a record deal. And they're not doing it because it wasn't the sweetest record deal. And I'm not saying they're looking for the sweetest record deal. But at the same time, the things. one thing I could segue real quickly is how much the music industry has changed. Now, if you're even you have to be like a TikTok influencer to even get any kind of level or have a lot Notice, of social yeah. media leverage. Right. And at that point, I mean, the deals they offer not to slag the industry, but it is disappointing that people are signing because they don't, they might really need the money. I'm, I'm in a situation where I don't, I have next month's rent. I'm not struggling like that. Therefore my kids are, I, they're still living in my house. Right. And the last thing I'd want them to do is sign away 50% of their life. Well, you know fortunate, I mean? they're, they're, fortunately, they have you, their father, who knows a little bit about the business. Exactly. So there are a lot of people that just see, you know, fame and think yeah. fortune without knowing any of the details of, of you know, what's actually on the paper. But yeah, you're, thankfully, you're, they have you. Stuck. Yeah. You're stuck for however many records, you know, that deal is. And they own 50% of not only your publishing, 50% of your merchandise, all touring. your touring, yeah. they own 50% of you. And then the, whatever you took, you got to recoup that. They're making money from dollar one. I mean, I know, I understand the process. I've been, I have yeah. been in deals and all that, but it's just changed so much in the last, you know, decade plus that it's, it's a tricky world to navigate. I sometimes paint myself as like, I'm, I'm an old geezer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just experienced, brother. 
Yeah, man. But um, what brings me happiness is watching my kids. I had no idea they were going to follow in my footsteps just in terms of, you know, being musicians and they've surpassed me. I can't do what they do. I'm not a songwriter, songwriter. I come up with riffs, ideas, and parts. I can enhance the song. I can hear melodies and suggest things, but I'm not like a songwriter. You know what I mean? There are people who sit down with the guitar and write songs and I'm, that's just never been me. I'm more of a player. I love music. I love great songwriters. And I, when I hear one, I want to play on it. You know, <laughs> that's awesome. What is, uh, what is your children's, uh, project called? Well, it's yet, my daughter's name is Marley okay. and my son's name is Griffin. And my son just wants to be the producer at this moment. Got it. And, you know, work with other artists, but they're, they're not, they haven't released yet, but I'll let you know when they do. Please do. I want to yeah, check it out. I don't for know sure. what it's under, you know, and right now they're just chalking up. They have probably close to a hundred songs written. Wow. And, a lot of people in this in, in this industry who have, have heard them are like, oh man, this is insane. So I, I have high hopes. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, you know? That's what I believe. And I know they believe it. My son is really wise. He said to me, Dad, even if you know we don't ever have a big, you know, top ten or a number one hit, it's like it doesn't matter. I just the journey. He said that mm. to me. He goes, It's the journey. Wow. It's the journey. And that's what it is truly about, like doing it for the right reasons. If the you know you can make a living from that, never forget that's that's a gift, man. You're an wow. artist. So wow. hard, you know. I, I I never forget where I came from, man. I don't. I know how hard it is. Hundred you know? percent, man. I appreciate that. And uh, before we go, what is? Uh, I know you mentioned the the band's uh, social media stuff. What is yours? Oh, Chris Cheney Base. See, his last name is C H A. Anyway, like Lon Chaney for anyone. Maybe I'm old. For anyone <laughs> silent film actor. It's not spelled like Dick Chaney. It's like Lon. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, Chris Chaney Bass. Okay. Is, is on, I'm just on Insta. Okay. And then so uh, now I'm, I'm doing and I'm I'm also one of those people that I don't care that I guess there's a few other people that took my exact account and I've never said like this guy's not me. Uh yeah. Either you'll figure it out or you won't. I don't right. really give a shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm the one that has more followers than the other guy who says he's me. <laughs> and it's way less stressed that way. That's awesome, yeah, dude. I don't Man, even care. <laughs> I really appreciate you being on here. You have been a wealth of great advice and wisdom and some badass stories. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you, brother. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Stay healthy, stay kind, spread love, good vibes and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path and just play. I'm Josh Paul. Hope to see you all out there sometime soon. And thank you to Dunlop for making this show possible. And be sure to check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Cheers.